Well, thanks for being here this morning. If you want to make your way back to your seat, finish getting some coffee or water, finish saying hello, and you can make your way back. And if you have a copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to take it out. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We've been in a sermon series uh, through the Sermon on the Mount since about February. We dove into the Beatitudes and we took line by line and just looked at each Beatitude. And then we kept going in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to keep going for the next few months, looking at this uh, way of living in the kingdom of God that Jesus puts forward to us. And he's invited us to let him give order to our lives. That means we're submitting to him, saying, okay, Jesus, show me what really matters. Show me how to live. And uh, that's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And in these sections here at the end of chapter 5, He's pointing back to the Old Testament law and saying, you've heard these things, but let me actually show you that it goes deeper than that. It actually goes down into your heart. And last week we looked at anger, and this week we're going to look at adultery and marriage and lust and divorce. So let's read God's word. Let's pray together, and let's see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, That everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that... Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, we need your help with these difficult words, with these words that could open wounds for many of us in the room this morning. So would you please send your Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to illuminate this word that you've inspired to show us what this means, and then to show us what it means for us. We love you, and we're glad you love us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'll say right off the bat that we are constrained this morning by two things. Time in the text. So we will not say everything there is to say about this topic. Uh, And I'm not even guaranteeing that everything I say is gonna be said well. And uh, so give me grace, let's give each other grace. Because this is a difficult topic that everyone in the room has some connection to. Um, And you know, it's not, I was telling Carrie this week, I was like, you know, this is not the kind of passage that if you were to go preach one time and say you can preach anything in scripture, someone's going to go, I want that one. Uh, There were some texts through the Sermon on the Mount as we were dividing up the preaching with the elders even this week that I thought, you know, I don't want them to preach three times this year, and then this have to be one of them. I'll I'll take some of those. Because this is not an easy topic. It's not easy, and and it can be difficult. What we're going to do this morning is just simply lay out a foundation for marriage that's going to help us understand what Jesus is saying in these two sections this morning in verses 27 to 32. We're gonna try to lay a foundation for understanding what marriage is and then understanding, based on these verses, how marriage goes wrong, and then we're gonna look, finally, at our hope in Christ this morning. 
So first, let's look at the picture of marriage. Because when Jesus jumps into this in verse 27, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. He is assuming a view of marriage. Now, I'm not going to say everything there is to say about marriage because I'm preaching this text, not every text about marriage. Uh, But he is assuming a certain view of marriage. Now, what is marriage? What is marriage? I I read this week, and I thought this was really good. Actually, our culture is pretty uh, consistent on what we think marriage is. Christians and non-Christians, every color, every orientation, most people agree what marriage is, actually. They may disagree on who can get married or things like that, but they agree that marriage is primarily an emotional attachment between two people. Even Christians have this view, that marriage is an emotional, feelings-based attachment between two people. It's romantic. It's a deep and lasting relationship with someone who is my soulmate. And it's based on these intense feelings of attraction. Now, the good news is that's not what marriage is. Now, it might include some of that, but that's not all marriage is. And if we're going to understand what marriage is, we've got to go all the way back to the first chapters in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 to 25, we read this, that the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. When you read helper, don't think sidekick. Think as an equal who comes alongside to complete what he was intended to do. He found no helper. That word is used most often in the Old Testament to describe God himself. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with his flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast, cling to his wife and they shall become one flesh. In that last verse, we get a picture of marriage. Marriage is a one flesh union. Marriage is a one flesh union. Marriage is both fully and freely giving ourselves to another, and it is fully and freely receiving the other. This giving and receiving results in a unity amidst diversity. And it's the diversity of man and woman being different that makes the unity all that more amazing. Marriage is definitely about emotional connection, but it's so much more. The union of marriage is not just a union of our emotions and our feelings. It's a comprehensive union. And that's what scripture means when it says one flesh. It certainly involves intimate personal love but it also involves the union of our physical bodies. We are physical beings. Our bodies aren't random or incidental to us. They are very part and parcel of who we are. Our world knows that it's more than just an emotional arrangement between two people. And you can find that out by asking almost anyone if they would enjoy a marriage that included absolutely no physical connection. Sex. 
they probably wouldn't go for a relationship like that. At some point, they're going to go, no, wait a minute, this, this will never include that. That's not the kind of union I'm after. I can tell you exactly what they'd say. But marriage is a union that does include our emotions, our mental state, our minds, our physical connection and unity, financial, relational, spiritual. It is fully and freely giving ourselves to another. And it is fully and freely having someone else give and present themselves to us and we receive them. That is what sexual intercourse is all about. That's why the last verse there in Genesis 2 is they were naked and not ashamed. So part of being a one flesh union between a man and a woman is they're presenting themselves saying, I'm holding nothing back but presenting myself to you. And the spouse says, I see all that you are and I love you and I cherish you and I receive you with love and with grace. Now, the beauty of that giving and receiving is that it is not a one-time act. John Kleinig wrote a book called Wonderfully Made and it's a biblical view of our bodies. And he says this about giving and receiving specifically as it relates to sex. Whether they know it or not, people who engage in sexual intercourse always give something of themselves to each other. Ideally, a man and a woman who engage in a sexual relationship give themselves totally and unreservedly to each other. But sex is never just sex. Yet such self-giving is not complete at any one point in time, nor on any single occasion. My soul, my sense of self, is not a static and fixed entity but a historical continuum that stretches back and reaches forward in time. Thus, the gift of myself sexually includes my past and foreshadows my future. Did you notice what he said there? It, when we give ourselves to someone else and we receive someone else, that's never something that you finish because people are always changing. People are always learning and growing, and especially because a one flesh union like biblical marriage involves physical connection, our bodies are always changing. And so to be one flesh means constantly, over and over again, I'm giving myself to my spouse, and my spouse is receiving me, and then my spouse is giving herself to me, and I'm receiving her in love and in grace, in service. It's never complete. Marriage is a place where we can safely present ourselves and find that we are received But all of this in marriage is pointing to something so much better than just a marital relationship. In Ephesians 5, Paul says that marriage is a mystery. And that mystery is pointing to Christ and his relationship to the church. In the broadest terms, theologians all agree that the way you can sum up our salvation in Jesus is by saying we are united to Christ. Just as in marriage we see a one flesh Union In our salvation, we see a union between us and Christ. Go read Romans 6 and you will find that language. But we also see other parallels to marriage that Christ fully and freely gives himself to us. And he even does it physically on the cross that we celebrate each week when we take the Lord's table. Christ fully and freely gives himself to us, even physically on the cross and in the resurrection. And then we, in response, fully and freely Present ourselves to him in a loving devotion and worship and obedience. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present yourselves as a living sacrifice. 
And then we find ourselves totally received and loved by Christ. So in just a couple of minutes, we've looked at from Genesis 2 and tried to touch on what marriage is so that we could see how it's pointing to Jesus. But now we can get into this text because we have a, a foundation. We're set up to understand why adultery and lust and divorce are so detrimental. So now we're going to see the picture of marriage. But now we see the, the problem, the peril of, of marriage. What makes marriages fall apart? Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you. He's not negating the first law. He's not saying that law doesn't matter. He's actually taking that law and he's applying it down into our hearts. And he says, yeah, adultery is not good. But let me tell you where that starts. It starts with lust. Lust spurns our spouse in favor of another by imagining a better body than the one we've been given. Lust is one of the most thorough anti-gospel acts we can ever engage in because it looks at another person and says quite outright, you are not enough for me. Whereas God's design for marriage is a full and free giving of oneself to another and a full of free receiving of another, lust does not fully and freely give or receive. Rather, lust happens in the shadows. Lust wants self-preservation and self-pleasing, and it comes from a place of self-centeredness. Lust wants to use another person for my own personal pleasure. Lust does not want to fully and freely give because it happens in the heart rather than out in the open. Lust, we've used this word before about the curated life. Lust wants to curate the kind of person we want to find pleasure in. We're in search of a, a different kind of body, a different kind of person, and we become too quickly dissatisfied. And if we understand the culture's understanding of marriage, right, that it's an emotional attachment, then lust makes perfect sense because we would be dissatisfied at some point with who's been given to us and we'd say, you're not enough anymore and I'm moving on, but do you understand how anti-gospel that is? That's not at all the way Jesus views and treats us, but this is why Jesus says in the heart, adultery begins with lust and lust is adultery in the heart. And one of the ways this bears itself out is through pornography. We're embodied people, and pornography disembodies the sexual act. It actually does not increase sexual desire at all. It decreases it, and here's John Kleinig again from his book. The pornographic display of sexual activity is, paradoxically, not explicit enough. I think we've all heard that word explicit used when it comes to porn and the effects that it has on people and we don't want our children seeing explicit images but John Kleinig is actually saying it's not explicit enough because it shows so little of what actually happens when a married couple makes love with each other. It disembodies what God intends to be an embodied act. And it's settling for something that's such a cheap alternative to what God intended. And so moving from 
lust, you move over and you begin to look at adultery. And we see all of this summed up in the story of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. We see David's look off of his rooftop onto another, turn into lust for Bathsheba, turn into adultery as he pursues her and sleeps with her and gets her pregnant, and eventually even turn into murder as he tries to cover up his sin. But lust becomes adultery in light of James chapter one, verses 14 and 15. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. When the desire of lust is fully grown, it will bring forth the action of adultery. This is the same principle Jesus used about anger and murder. It's not just the act of murder that's wrong. It's the attitude of murder in your heart that's anger. It's not just the act of adultery that's wrong. It is, but it's also the attitude of adultery, which is lust. And I was talking with Nathan this morning. It's like we think we can manage the sin in our life. And we forget that that cute lion cub will be a full-grown lion one day, and it will destroy you. My pastor growing up used to always say, sin will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. We think we can control it. We think we can keep lust in our heart, but Scripture tells us it's going to become fully grown at some point, and it will lead to adultery. Adultery is simply acting out the desires of Lust And what adultery does, remember our, our understanding of marriage according to scripture, it's a one flesh union. Adultery is attempting to establish another one flesh union than the one God's given us in marriage. Adultery is not freely giving ourselves, but it's rather keeping ourselves back. And we also don't fully receive. We actually use someone else and then leave. And then as we move on to the next section in verses 31 and 32 and look at Divorce, this is a tricky passage. Divorce, maybe even more so than lust and adultery, has touched probably everyone in this room in some way. What do we do with Jesus' teaching on divorce or the Old Testament teaching on divorce and what Jesus says later in Matthew 19 and what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7? Well, I think what Jesus is trying to say is that divorce is, is not a tool for our pleasure. It's not an off-ramp to help us get to where we really wanted to be all along. Divorce in Scripture is never commanded. Anytime you read about it, it's only ever permitted. And part of that is because God delights to restore the marriage between two broken people. If God's in the business of bringing death out of life, then surely he's in the business of bringing dead marriages back to life. So before you're quick to jump and into the emergency scenario of divorce, consider how God might want to restore your marriage. But it's important to see that the only grounds of divorce that Jesus gives is sexual immorality. You say, why does that matter? Remember what marriage is, a one flesh union. Jesus is giving permission for divorce so that you can make official what's already been a reality. What is that? That your one flesh union has been broken. 
Jesus is saying if you're married and your spouse goes off and tries to establish one flesh unions with other people besides you, they have turned their back on your one flesh union. If that spouse is unrepentant and unchanging and hard-hearted and has set their mind to go and pursue that, then let me tell you what the reality is. Your one flesh union has already been broken by that spouse. So yeah, get a divorce and make official and legal what's already been a reality. But Jesus is not saying you have to do that because God does delight to bring even the worst sinners to repentance, to give the strength and the grace to allow even the most wounded of spouses to forgive and in a process to see marriages restored. So divorce is only permitted, never commanded, but it's only permitted, and it's only permitted when there's this unrepentant spouse that's got their mind set on these other one flesh unions, which I would say if the grounds for divorce is destroying the one flesh union between a man and a woman, then that does not just include sleeping with someone else. That would also include cases of abuse. Like I have heard of pastors actually telling women in abusive relationships that they don't have biblical grounds for divorce. That is unbelievable. Get out and get safe, please. Because your spouse is turning their back on the one flesh union that God has given you by destroying his own flesh, his spouse. Get out or abandonment. I think both of those are biblical grounds for divorce, but I think if you talk to someone that has been divorced and has maybe even been remarried after a biblical divorce, if you can call it that, I think what they would tell you is that this is not plan A. And don't come to me looking to justify your fleshly reasons for wanting to get divorced from your spouse. God's plan is for a man and a woman to be married for life. Not that that will ever be easy. But that's exactly the point. That it takes incredible grace and incredible power for two people to be married over a lifetime. The tens of thousands, millions of times of giving grace and forgiveness, of saying sorry and repenting, of what Tim and Kathy Keller call receiving the other. You know a silly thing to say to someone you're married to? Boy, you've changed. Oh, yeah. Of course they have, and you have. That's part of life. The challenge is not to say, I want to, I wish, you're not the person I married. You're exactly right. The challenge is can you love the person they're becoming every single day? So what do we learn from all this? Like, what do we do with this teaching that Jesus is giving us? Well, I think we see that when sex becomes a transaction rather than a union, it's gonna cause almost irreparable damage. We don't say irreparable because we believe in this amazing God that resurrects the dead, but it causes incredible damage. This kind of sexual immorality that Jesus talks about here, lust, adultery, even leading to divorce, will cause us to become hardened. It'll cause us to protect ourselves rather than freely give ourselves 
to preserve our image and be fearful. We'll become ashamed of our bodies, wondering if we'll continue being received. But we'll also become more lustful, wanting more of what we cannot have and having no interest in fully and freely receiving the other person, but rather only using that person for our own pleasure. Sex as transaction will make us ashamed critics. Critics because we're constantly trying to curate the next person we'd like to sleep with or lust after or get some pleasure from. And ashamed because we will always be worried that others are doing that to us. Be ready to lob criticisms toward others and be fearful that they're lobbing those same criticisms back. But if sex is a physical union between two people, then we can be confident in lifelong acceptance no matter what changes come to us. That's the beauty and the safety of a God-given marriage is you have found, like Song of Songs celebrates the entire book. I have found the one in whom my soul delights. I have found love and grace and acceptance and they know exactly how imperfect I am and they love me. That is a beautiful thing. Oh goodness, I go back and I, Carrie and I got married right here before we were on staff here in any way. And, uh, and so we've shown our kids wedding pictures and they just crack up at how different we looked. We got married seven and a half years ago. It's not that long ago. And I look at wedding pictures, maybe you look at wedding pictures or you've seen them of your parents and you think about how much they've changed. It's like, she still loves me. That is wonderful news. With how much I've changed, when Carrie and I met, we were in the second grade, same second grade class. And my kids the other day, I forget what we were talking about, but they didn't believe that I used to like play sports or something like that. And so being the prideful man that I am, I'm thinking, okay, I've got pictures somewhere of me in shape. So Facebook helps me dig up this picture of me in my prime, I peaked very early in life, okay? <laughs> very, I've been this tall since I was like 12, 13, so I was like, you know, I'm going pro, and then it was like, wait, I'm not getting any bigger or better. So I find this picture of teenage Johnny flexing in all my pride at the beach, thinking this is gonna impress the kids. And they went, you used to have muscles. <laughs> yeah. I said, I still do. Where are they? <laughs> They're in there. <laughs> They're in there. So now they think my muscles are just hiding underneath all my fat. But marriage becomes a lifelong adventure of accepting the other that you are married to. Not turning your back on the person that's changed from the one you've married rather working to know and to love that person that you've committed your life to. Early in our marriage, it doesn't matter how many times I say these things, but then being up here and saying it to you all adds more emotion to it. Um, Sam Ward. I texted his uh, daughter and son-in-law this week. Sam was an incredible man and he passed away a little less than two years ago. 
Sam was simple and a hard worker and um, had eight kids, a lot of kids, and did not have a house big enough for all those kids and did not kick those kids out when they would leave and come back and just families or kids who would marry someone in the military and like, hey, bring all your kids back. And they had five kids and they had a, their youngest was named Anna and Anna and Carrie became friends in college and Carrie didn't have a place to live. So like, Carrie, you move into and, and they were just incredible, uh, Sam and Andy were incredible people. And they love to talk about marriage. They love to pour into young couples and engaged couples and newlyweds. And he had taught Sunday school for many years. And he was a man of great integrity. And I remember sitting at Starbucks with Sam. We'd been married less than a year. And he's pouring this same principle into me. And at this point, he'd been married something like close to four decades. And he, with the same vigor and excitement that I was, having been married just a few months, was talking about getting to know Andy and listening to her and learning her. And and he's telling me, you know, you never stop doing this because she never stops changing. You can never assume that you know her. Never assume that you know her. Stay curious. Keep getting to know her. And that just stuck in. I never forgot Sam teaching me that lesson. And so as I'm preparing for this, I'm thinking that is exactly what marriage is and that is exactly the antidote we need to avoiding the lust, adultery, divorce that Jesus warns us of. Rather than getting bored with our spouse, let's pursue our spouses. Rather than saying, you're not the person I married and I'm done and I'd like to go find and curate this other partner to belong to, We say, no, you're the one God's given me. I want to keep knowing you and forgiving you and loving you just as Christ has done me. I could stand up here and tell you stories of heartbreaking failed marriages. Talked about them this week. And I think you've probably heard them too. And so it's, I don't know how helpful that is. But you need to know that this happens on every level. Christian, non-Christian, pastor, church staff, leaders, old, young, it does not matter. We had two extremely close friends who right when they hit the 10-year anniversary, it just seemed to all come crumbling down. Then there's been pastors that have been in the ministry for decades. Same thing. But if Sex becomes a physical union between two people fully and freely giving themselves to another, saying, I'm I'm not holding anything back. I'm not holding a part of me back to go give to someone else. You get me and you get all of me. The good, the bad, the ugly, the hidden muscles, you get all of it. And it seems to me like the longer I live, the more of me there is to give. And then we look at our spouse and we say, I want all of you. There's nothing you have to hold back from me. I want all of you. There's nothing you have to hide. I want to forgive you and I want to love you and I want to pursue you. And then we have this lifelong adventure of accepting the other, this journey that we're never done walking down, of learning our spouse and loving them. What in the world is our hope to live that out? It seems like the most impossible task. Well, what is our hope? Because Jesus identifies this problem in our heart, he says it explicitly in verse 28. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his 
heart. Because he says the problem is in our hearts, we need a solution that we cannot provide. We need heart change. Had a wonderful conversation with our oldest this week about a friend at school that was having some trouble, and she just said, I wish she would change her heart. I'm like, praise God she understands where the problem is. We need heart change, and if the problem's in the heart, we can't change our own hearts. Again, John Kleinick, his book, Wonderfully Made, self-discipline cannot perform the required surgery on the heart and mind. Only Christ can do that. He alone can create a new heart and renew a right spirit within us. Psalm 51.10. He is the surgeon who gives us a new heart in baptism. Ezekiel 11.19 and Ezekiel 36.25-27. This is the story that Romans 4-8 through 8 tells. That we are united to Christ in his death so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And then Romans 6 tells us that we're to reckon or consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God constantly presenting ourselves to him as those who have been brought from death to life. So you say, how do I change? One, you need a new heart that only Jesus can give you. Two, you've got to live into that new heart every day by coming to Christ, daily confessing and repenting, coming to Jesus in our failure, and fully and freely presenting ourselves to him. If we wanna build healthy marriages, then we need Jesus. If we want to build marriages that avoid these things, we need Jesus. And the only way to do that is to first fully and freely present ourselves to him. You cannot learn to fully and freely present yourself to your spouse until you first do that with Christ. You cannot. But when we do that with Christ, when we fully and freely present ourselves to him, we find his loving and gracious acceptance. When we're drowning in the anti-gospel world of sexual immorality, when we're drowning in the anti-gospel worldview that's looking at people based on what they can give us and worried that they're doing the same and wondering if we're ever measuring up and thinking we can curate the kind of person we want to lust after or sleep with or be married to versus the one God's given us, we can come to Jesus and find that he truly sees us, all of us, And he loves us deeply. Jesus is the only truly faithful one. So, no matter your sexual history, no matter your marital history, you can come to Jesus. It doesn't matter what your story is. I think that's why John chapter 4 is included in the scriptures. Jesus graciously interacting with the woman at the well, which is already curious. Why is she going in the middle of the day? That was not, there's no other women around because they all wanted another time of day. Oh, because she's had five husbands and the man she's living with now is not her husband. What is your instinct telling you Christ ought to do in that moment? Do you, Religious person in us may say, give her a path to growth, show her how to repent, Jesus. Show her how to make things right. Hey, um, person you live with now is not your husband, you've been married five times. You, you need to go back a little bit. And let's, let's figure out how to make these relationships right. Why did all this happen? 
person living with now, you need to get married right now and you need to figure this out because you can't continue down the... <laughs> oh, that's kind of what my instinct tells me. Now put yourself in the woman's shoes. How do you hope Jesus responds in that moment? <laughs> I'm not even sure you could have imagined he would respond the way he did. He essentially invites her to become a true worshiper of Jesus. I mean, honestly, he doesn't even bring up her sin after he, call, after he says, I know. I mean, he's telling her what it means to truly worship God. And he's like, look, I already know this about you. Like, she thinks, oh, I perceive you're a prophet, so tell me, where's the right place to worship? But she's trying to put on the religious mask. And he just says, don't do that. We really don't have to do that. And he sees right through and calls her to himself. And she goes back to her town and tells everyone about the man who knows everything she ever did. And still loved her and showed her grace and invited her to be a true worshiper. So no matter your sexual and marital history, Christ extends the invitation to you. Come. Don't clean yourself up and come, but come to Jesus. Because he's the one that can give you a clean heart like Psalm 51 talks about. Your salvation begins a lifelong relationship of union with Christ. Again, we're not going to say everything there is to say about marriage because there's a far better marriage than the one we live out here on earth. A marriage that's so great that actually our marriages here won't even continue in the new creation because we'll be so united to Jesus. In Jesus, you have found the one for whom you were created. He's really the only soulmate we have. He's the one who will love you unconditionally. He is the one who will be totally faithful to you. He is the one with grace enough to forgive you and power enough to change you not your spouse, and not a new spouse. So among our failing and difficult marriages, Christ is the perfectly faithful one. Our hope is not that we will get our act together and straighten this thing out. Our hope is the presence of Christ in the midst of our failure. Only he can bring redemption and peace and restoration and forgiveness. Only he can bring closure to the most difficult and broken of situations. And his commitment to us invites us into a better marriage that will last for all eternity. Where we find ourselves the art of losing myself <laughs> in bringing you praise. We'll be so united in fellowship and in love with Jesus forever. That's why Paul says marriage is a mystery. And it's pointing to Christ and his church. And so in these difficult passages, I'm not sure where you found yourself. Christ gives some difficult words here about what to do with taking serious your sin. Cutting off the hand that caused you to sin. Gouging out the eye that caused you to sin. And I think that's part of what Romans 4 to 8 is telling us. As we're new creations, let's begin to live like it. And that takes community. Specifically with this area of sin, we believe the lie that we don't want to bring this out into the light because of the shame we'll feel, because of the condemnation that it's going to bring. But I have news for you. Everywhere the light touches in the kingdom of God brings grace and healing, not condemnation. So the invitation this morning is not to get your act together. 
It's to come to Jesus where you can fully and freely present yourself to him and find love and grace because he has fully and freely presented himself to you to love you and never give up on you. Let's pray. Jesus, we do love you this morning. We pray for all the marriages in the room and we pray for all the people who will never be married in this room, God. That the point is not marriage in this life. I pray that you'd bring us all contentment with our circumstances, God. I pray for those who will never be married that just think, well, just I could tune that one out. That God, you would use this to woo them closer to you and they would understand more deeply the marriage they have with Christ, the union they have with you. And I do pray for the marriages in the room, God, that you would protect them, that you would call husbands and wives to greater faithfulness, protect us, God, from lust and from adultery. And I pray that anyone this morning that's thinking, man, I'm ready to pull the alarm and just run for divorce because I don't like this person anymore. I pray for the person that's struggling with lust in their heart or addicted to pornography or in an adulterous affair right now. I pray, God, that you would call those people to yourself. And I pray that this church family could be the hands and feet of Jesus and moving towards people that are hurting, towards people who are stuck in brokenness, towards people who don't know what to do, and that together we can walk in your light and figure this thing out with your wisdom. I pray that no one in here would feel that they're in isolation and have to fight this battle on their own, but I pray that they would, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, come to you, Jesus, to find grace and mercy to help in time of need. And I pray that they would come to those in this faith family to walk together alongside them. We love you, Jesus. Help us this week to more truly and openly present ourselves to you not hiding anything from you. And help us this week to more fully receive you as you have fully and freely presented yourself to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we do every week, we're gonna take the Lord's table and this is the time to celebrate Christ's offering of himself to us. And we get to take the bread and take the cup and celebrate Christ's body broken for us because he physically, self-sacrificial love we didn't get to go there talking about marriage today. But he did this for us that we may have life. And so if you know Jesus, you're invited to the table this morning to celebrate his body broken for you and his blood shed for you. And if this morning you've not entered into a union with Jesus by faith alone and received his grace to give you a new heart, then you're invited to Jesus this morning. I would love to pray with you and help you understand what it means to turn your life over to him and receive the salvation that he offers. But please come and pray with me. Come to Jesus. You can pray in your own words and put your faith in him, but that is his invitation this morning for all of us. If you know him, come to the table. If you don't know him, come to Jesus this morning. Jesus, thank you for your body broken and your blood shed. We pray we would receive the grace that you're offering us at the table this morning. It's in Jesus' name, amen.